Welcome to the Clovercrest Baptist Church podcast. For more information about Clovercrest Baptist Church, go to clovercrest.com.au. Well, we are in a series uh, in Romans. This is the second week. Uh, we're in a series uh, that we've uh, called Restored Belief. We're sitting in our mega kind of theme this year of restoration. And we'll be sitting in Romans 1 to 11, looking at restored belief. And then we'll be spending some time uh, from Romans 12 to the end of the letter, looking at restored living. And this is um, really an opportunity for us to continue to understand God's heart for us to be restored unto him. And we learned last week that Paul wrote this uh, letter uh, to the church in Rome, to the house churches scattered throughout Rome, so that they would have a full understanding of the gospel. Uh, He was wanting to bring them onto the same page. There's a sense of unity that he's wanting to bring in their faith formation and so that they are on mission together. Because in many ways, what Paul's doing is he was setting out a a platform for them uh, so that he could build relationship and build partnership as he had his eye on Spain. He was looking to Spain as a new frontier for mission, uh, that, you know, where he had been involved in mission. He'd been church piling for 25 years, and now he's sort of thinking, what's next? And that was the, the thought that he had. He was having this moment of what's next, and what next was Spain. That was what was on his horizon, and he was wanting to build this strategic relationship and partnership with uh, the church in Rome to that end. And last week, the big idea for us was that God's gospel is for all. We looked at this idea of God's gospel is for all. It doesn't matter around your ethnicity, your past, your education, or your gender. It does not exclude you from receiving Jesus into your life. God's gospel always has been and always will be for all. There's an invitation for us to step into relationship with God. And Paul says uh, in verses 16 and 17, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we looked at this idea, if you remember last week, that looking at who are you, how are you proud of God and not being ashamed of God, but how are we proud of God? And how do we live in the power of God? Because we know that's a saving power in our lives. How do we not look to how we can live on our own strength, but how do we look to live in the power of God? And after such a wonderful description of the gospel, the good news of God, that Paul gives us in this first part of Romans 1, particularly in verses 14 to 17, one might think that Paul might just continue to go exploring on and elaborating on just the wondrous nature of the gospel. But in fact, Paul doesn't do that. He takes a bit of a right-hand turn. He actually doesn't come back to his thoughts in verses 16 and 17 until chapter 3, verse 20. And if you've read any of Paul's letters or you know his writing, he can follow tangents. He can chase rabbits down holes. It's what he can do in his letters at times. But remember I spoke last week that Paul was writing with precision, timing and purpose. He knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew how he wanted to say it. And he actually starts to go down another line of thought and thinking in verses 18 to 32, where we sit today, and he begins to talk about the problem for humanity. He talks about sin, the things that we do or don't do that hurt God, ourselves, and others. And theologian Douglas Moo says this, he says, only by fully understanding the bad news, we can appreciate 
the good news. And he says that Paul kind of takes this right-hand turn and he goes down this other path so that he actually explains the problem for humanity, which is rebellion and sin. And as we continue to understand that in our lives, we can appreciate the good news in a fuller depth that he comes back to in chapter 3. See, we are indeed a people in need of restoration. So when we moved into our house, I was thinking about this. It was like eight years ago we moved into the house that we were in. And out the back, we have a pergola area and we have these outdoor blinds. And uh, out the back of our house when we moved in, we had this beautiful English box hedge. And it ran for the entire length of the pergola, which was probably, I don't know, it's probably about eight meters. It was a really nice box hedge. And, you know, I'm not much of a gardener, but I like kind of pruning things and trimming things. And a couple of times a year, I'd trim this thing. I'd try and get it straight. I'd look back and admire it for half a minute. And that was probably, you know, the sum total of what I spent time on. But I really, really like this box hedge. I don't know if there's like just, you know, something in your garden that you really like. There's some, something about this box hedge. Whenever I looked out, I saw it. It just looked really great. And last year, my, uh, my uh, brother-in-law was over, and we were having a drink under the pergola, and he said to me, he said, what's wrong with your box hedge? I said, what do you mean? The beautiful box hedge, it's fine. It's been just existing for however long it's been there. We've had it for seven years there. It's been fine. He goes, there's a section there that doesn't look too flash. And the outdoor blinds were down and it was winter. So we went to investigate. And we went and had a look at the box hedge. And there was this one little section about maybe 30 centimetres long that looked like it started to die. And I was like, oh, that's a bit odd. I haven't really paid much attention to it during the winter. Just sort of let it do its thing. And I put my hands into this box hedge, and I saw hundreds and hundreds of this little bug that was white and yellow that looked like that. You can see it on the screen. I had no idea what it was. So I had to go to Dr. Google. I went to Dr. Google, and I found out that this was called scale. Who knows what scale is? Anyone? Yep, apart from David George, yes. Now... I called up David George and, and some other people that were keen on gardening. I said, oh, I've got a problem. Uh, it looks like I've got this, this little bug. And not just one, there was hundreds of these little bugs in this one section. I realized that this bug scale started to suck the life out of the box hedge and it started to kill it from the bottom up. And I was in, I was in trouble with this section of the hedge. So what did I do? I went to Bunnings. I spent way too much money on, you know, pesticide and different, you know, sprays. And I even bought a couple of little extra ones that I could pop in there to help them grow up. And I didn't want to lose the hedge. So I just tried my best to save that little bit of the hedge, not to any luck. We had to cut that bit of the hedge out. I had to plant some new bits of the hedge. And I thought, well, it doesn't quite look the same. But, you know, maybe in five years' time, it might all kind of fill out and it'll be okay. A few months later... I look back at the hedge, and about three metres further down, another bit started to look like it was going to die. And I put my hands in, and what did I see? All these scales. And I was like, oh, these little critters, I hate you. <laughs> and I only had one decision. The only decision I had was I had to take out the hedge. So I had to cut down this hedge, this beautiful-looking hedge, and put it in the green bin because it had disease all riddled through it. Why do I tell this story, apart from just the fact that I feel like I'm getting some counselling and some therapy <laughs> with you today, and I thank you so much for that. 
Now, I tell you this story because where Paul takes us from verses 18 to 32 is that he explains that the reason why the gospel, the good news of God, is so urgently needed is because the box hedge is riddled with disease. And what is the box hedge? The box hedge is the human race. He talks about in verses 18 to 32, the human race has a problem. It's been in rebellion against its creator God. It's like it's riddled with disease. This is where Paul takes us in the imagery that he gives us. And there's three key ideas that I want to explain and talk through from this section, verses 18 to 32. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me today. The first one is this, is that we are designed for God's plan. See, humans were designed to rule God's creation. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God and part of what it means that God was talking about in his creation narrative in Genesis 1. So that first time when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden and all the times throughout the Old Testament where God's people just kept falling over and getting it wrong, God's original plan was kept from becoming a reality. This is what verse 18 to 20 states. Paul says this, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what they may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what is being made, so that people are without excuse. See, Paul is calling out humanity on being godless and wicked in contrast to a powerful and eternal God. And because of this, the wrath of God is being revealed. And the wrath of God, another way to, to, to say this is like the anger of God. But it's not the anger of God like a parent's anger to a child that comes from a, maybe an emotive response. It's more the, the anger of God of being such a holy God. And, and, and God's holiness, actually us as humans not meeting and making up to his level. So the wrath of God, the anger of God is more a necessary response due to the holiness of God and him just not being able to deal with the fact that we're not living according to his standards. In verse 20, I love it, where Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying that God continues to reveal himself through his creation. Really, God's made it plain to us that he is a creator God, that he is the real deal, that he is the one that is holy and just, and he has made that known to us, plain to us. And in many ways, we are without excuse. I wonder if you can think about, you know, in your life, uh, just in this last week, consider a time where you've seen God. Just take a moment of reflection. In this last week, a time where you have seen God. It might be that you've seen God in the smile of another person. Someone taking time with you. It might be someone you know, in their act of compassion or kindness towards you. Or it might indeed be an act of compassion and kindness that you have given towards another person. And in and through that, that you've actually seen God. It might be this week that you've been out in creation. 
You might love being out in creation. You might love maybe getting to a particular you know, hill or river. Or, and in that place, you feel so close to God. It might be this week, you've been out in that place, you felt close to God, and then you got poured on in rain and went, yep, this could only be from God. His creation, wondrous, unexpected, majestic, and beautiful. See, God has revealed himself to us. And part of his design is that we are part of his plan. And the second aspect of this is that not not just are we part of God's plan, we've been made to worship him. We've been made to worship God. We've been made to know, worship, love, and serve our creator God. And there's this sense of humility in life, knowing that we are not God. Yet God is the creator, and we have been created to worship him. And there's a humility and a surrender that comes as people who have been created to come back before God and surrender to him. And it's not lost on me at all that Paul was writing this in the first century to the house churches in Rome. And today, you know, close to 2,000 years later, the, the, the issues that we have around our self-centeredness, around our putting ourselves at the middle of the story, around our you know, being self-sufficient and saying, well, I got myself into it, I'll get myself out of it. We can treat ourselves at times like a mini-God. But what, what Paul is saying here is that we've been made to worship God. And even though our culture might train us to put us at the center of our existence, actually that's not how God Sees it. We've been made to worship him. Verses 21 to 23 says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul's speaking about here is he's saying that, you know, humans knew God. They, they knew God was there, but they didn't glorify him or give thanks to him. And this is really, I guess, a good question for us. You know, as we think about our place before the creator God, and as we think about our brokenness and our, and our sin, how do we worship God? How do we come before him with thanksgiving? How do we posture ourselves before God and say, God, you are God and I am not? In the worship song that we were singing, you are Uh, the God of all these Old Testament prophets that we have seen your faithfulness over the generations. And Lord, we know you're faithful today. And we give thanks to you. And we worship you. And we come before you. In verse 21, Paul speaks about how this disease of sin spreads throughout humanity. It starts with distorted thinking or futile thinking and then leads to a darkened heart. You know, at first you might not pick sin up in your life, but then all of a sudden you're overrun with it. At first, the box hedge looked fine. But then when I opened it up, the scale was all through it. And that can be how sin creeps into our lives, through our futile thinking and through our darkened heart. It just gets in slowly, and then before you know it, it's overrun. And it's really interesting that we come to this conversation because I don't think there's anything here that maybe if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been exploring faith with him, you you know that God calls us to holiness. You know that God calls us to a life uh, with him. We've been set apart by what Jesus has done on the cross. But sometimes there can be a knowing, doing gap, can't there? 
in our lives. We know maybe what the right thing to do is, but we don't necessarily do it. There can be a disconnect between information and transformation. There can be a disconnect between knowledge and action. There can be a bit of a a gap there. And we can have this in our lives. You know, we can know that uh, living a healthy life is something that's really important. And if you want to live well into your latter years, eating well and exercising is very important parts of that. But sometimes... It can just be a little hard, particularly on weeks like we've just had or the winter months that we're in. We go, well, might just leave that exercising and eating healthy to another time. It's a knowledge doing gap. Or it might be that you know getting to bed at a certain hour is good for your health. And everyone kind of goes to bed at different times, but there might be a window and you're like, yep, I know that time is a good time for me to get to bed. But there's just a new series being released on Netflix I'm just going to push it out one more episode. Actually, now I don't even have to press a button. It just goes to the next one. Before I know it, the next one. And then the next one. And you're not looking after yourself. And maybe the same can happen in our faith. We know investing in our relationship with Jesus and avoiding sin and pursuing holiness. We know that is the right thing to do. But sometimes there can be a gap between knowing and doing. Or perhaps we just haven't thought about it much lately. And what's interesting is we've just received some stats back from the NCLS, which is the National Church Life Survey. And we do that every now and again. And we've just got the summary profile back. They haven't given us the the full results on Clovey, but they've given us a summary profile. And and I feel like it's interesting here as well because we're, there might be a little knowing doing gap for us to hold up the mirror and have a think about as a church because 96% of people, part of our church family, said that um, faith in God that affects our every day is a really important part of what it means to be a Christian, which is true, 96%, which is right up there, right? You know, 96% of us saying that faith in our every day is a, is a good thing to pursue. However, only 48%, one in two people that filled out the survey, said that they read the Bible each day. And I think that could be a knowing-doing gap for us because we can know that following God in our everyday life is really important, but not all of us are getting into the Word each day. Only half of us, 48%. And it's hard if we're not in the Word of God to know what God thinks about certain things. There can be a gap between our knowledge and our action. And it's uh, something for us, I think, to consider about what it means to be a people who worship God. Because Paul says in verse 22 that people who have a distorted thinking and a darkened heart, they claim to be wise, but they're actually foolish. And this is the disease of sin that can take over our lives. It can begin to deceive us. So we've been designed to be part of God's plans and we've been made to worship. And the third idea that comes from this passage for us is that sin affects the whole person. Sin affects the whole person. From verses 24 through to 32, Paul outlines that sin affects the whole person from the heart to the body to the mind. Sin is pervasive and it spreads fast, much like the scale on my box hedge. And once it finds its way in, It's very, very hard to get out. 
Regarding the heart, Paul says this in verse 24, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. Regarding the body in verse 26, he says God gave them over to their shameful lusts. And regarding the mind in verse 28, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. I don't know about you, but when I think about the problem of humanity, rebellion and sin... I think, man, this is a warning. I think we need to take the warning. Sin affects all of our body, our mind, our heart, and our body. And what is the result of humanity's heart, body, and mind affected by sin? Well, Paul doesn't just, he just does not pack any punch here. He just goes for it in verses 29 to 32. This is what he says. He says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decrees and those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also they approve those who practice them. Wow. As humans, we have a problem, right? Humanity, we have a problem. The rebellion against our creator God, and this problem is called sin, and it separates us from God. It infiltrates all the areas of our lives. And I know I don't need to convince you of this. And this isn't something we sit in for long periods of time as a culture, and even sometimes at church, but I don't need to convince you of the areas of your life that you struggle or the areas of your life where you are in sin, or the areas of your life that are broken and there's pain, and, and you cry out to God and you ask for his help. But I think what Paul is trying to do today is get our attention and say, please look at this. And look at the problem that we have as humans, the rebellion against God. And just like the box hedge had to go, so does the sin in our lives. And Paul talks about in this passage, he talks about the problem with humanity and the rebellion that is in our hearts. But then in chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. He says that God shows kindness, forbearance, which is tolerance, and patience with an aim to lead us to repentance. You see, the good news of the gospel is this. The good news of the gospel is that God is patient and kind and will forgive. His aim is to lead us to repentance. And repentance in the Greek here is the word metanoia. And metanoia has two meanings. One is to change your mind and second is to turn around. Change your mind and turn around. And really with repentance, with repentance there's two moves. The first move is to turn away from the sin. And the second move is to turn towards God for forgiveness and new life. John put it this way in 1 John. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, the invitation from a generous and gracious and holy God is to call us into repentance. 
He is patient, he is kind, he is tolerant, and he calls us into repentance. He doesn't want us to live in the sin. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us from our sins. Do we all struggle with sin? Yes, all in different ways. But the invitation from God is an invitation to come and experience his forgiveness through our repentance, to turn away from the sin and to turn to God for new life. That's the move of repentance. And that's the move that Paul makes here to the church in Rome. And why does he do this? Well, remember, he's giving them a full understanding of the gospel. And it's important for us to consider that today. In the 1700s, there was a man by the name of John Newton. You might have heard of his name. He was once a slave trader. And that's how he spent his days. And he had this experience and this encounter with God. And he went from being a slave trader to a person who pursued a life following Jesus. He became an abolitionist. He became a pastor in the Church of England. And he became a hymn writer. His most famous hymn is that by the name of Amazing Grace. He realized the forgiveness that he had experienced in God. He inspired people like William Wilberforce, who you might have heard of. And John Newton was alive when the bill was passed in the UK government for the abolishment of slavery into North Africa. He was alive for that. And he said these words as he was coming close to the end of his life. He said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. I wonder if you can relate. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. You know what John Newton experienced when he met Jesus? He experienced kindness, patience and the forgiveness of God that led him to repentance. You know, there was no good news for my box hedge. It's gone. Maybe this will be the last we speak of it. It's in the bin, turns into mulch. But what an invitation for us to come before the living God with that in our life that isn't lined up with his plan and his purposes, whether it's thoughts or whether it's actions, and come to him with the repentance to experience new life, new life in him. We stand, let's stand together.